Will you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 4? Psalm 4. I, am as, I have opportunity preaching through the Psalms, and with each Psalm I study to preach, I'm struck at the emotional honesty in this ancient poetry. It goes against so much of the way we, or at least I, have come to think about the way we should act in the face of trouble. That is, as much as possible, as if there's no trouble at all. Um, as if there's something especially holy about being stoic and never um, twitching. But these psalms, I think, helpfully show us that it is good and even godly to say that everything is not okay. To cry out to God for relief from the, tu- from the trouble we find ourselves in. Knowing that He hears and more can do something about it. Hear now as I read Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Pray with me. Our Father, we pray knowing that you hear the prayers and the cries of your people, that you hear and that you answer. We pray now that your word would do its work, that it would teach us what we need to know, that it would expose in us what is wrong and correct us and train us in all righteousness. We pray that your word preached this morning would bring to life that which is dead, and give growth to that which you have already made alive by your great grace. We pray by the work of your Holy Spirit that you would be glorified, that you would meet us here in your word and change us, that you would now prepare our hearts and teach us to love your law. Help us to submit to every word of your scripture. Work in us by your word a delight for you, a love for your law because it comes from your very hand. Or Lord, make us new. Help us by your grace to set aside everything that stands in the way of hearing and obeying you. I pray for myself that all I would say is pleasing in your sight, that your will be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Unprecedented. This has never happened before. For the first time in the history of the world. It's going to get worse before it gets a lot worse than that. We're hearing words and ideas like this all the time. Whether you look at a newspaper, if you still know what those things are, or turn on the TV news or even a basketball game, or get on Facebook or Twitter, it seems no matter where you turn, there are people waiting to tell you just how bad it is out there and how this badness is especially unique to the year 2020 and how afraid, of what, of, how afraid you should be of what is coming next. That we should either be angry or panicking or both at the same time. And I think the main reason for the panic is that 
there's a segment of the population, especially here in the U.S., even here in our area, who have never had any kind of significant suffering or challenge or even discomfort and have no idea what to do with it. They're completely unequipped with what to do in the face of something hard or opposition of any kind. I think the reason there is so much anger in the world is, as one blog article I saw this week said, some are angry at the government, some are scared of the virus, some are afraid of the effects of more restrictions, some are mad at their neighbors for not following the restrictions. It's tiring and trying to keep up with it all. It's been a long year. We're fraying at the edges. This can cause even our ordinary interactions that are unrelated to our larger frustrations to turn sour and sharpen quickly. Because the people involved are already coming to the table sad, they're already discouraged and already feeling helpless and out of control, the harsh realities surrounding us can, do, can too often cause us to be harsh with one another, and that only makes our problems worse. Suffering brings out what is underneath. As I've said before, pressure exposes the heart. And what the events of this year have done is put a steady pressure on the whole world. Such that the, the whole, the, the veneer of public decency has worn thin or away altogether, allowing the ugliness of sin to leak out everywhere. What I want to do here this morning is twofold. One, to show that suffering is not unique to the year 2020. I think if we can get a little historical perspective, it will help us to see that we're not alone in history. That doesn't necessarily make what we're facing any easier but it does help us to see that people and civilizations have survived hard times before. And the second thing I want to do is equip us to face suffering and opposition. Now, this is not something I can do, no matter how hard I try. It must come from God and His revealed Word. It will not take long at all to accomplish the first goal, and then we'll spend the rest of our time together this, this morning looking at Psalm 4, where by God's grace we'll see just what to do when we are in distress. So first... I think we as a society are dangerously close if we haven't already crossed into becoming sinfully superstitious about the year 2020. As though, one, nothing bad of significance has ever happened before the year 2020, and everything that has happened in this admittedly strange year is just the worst. But two, when the calendar flips over to January 1 of 2021, they think nothing bad will ever happen again. It's, it's the year's fault, as though the calendar had anything to do with it. On the first count, I think those in history would laugh at what we call the worst. That's not to say that the bad things that have happened are not bad, but they're not really unprecedented. There have been pandemics worse than this, like actual pandemics, <laughs> that, that, that wiped out entire cities. There have been political fights, in, even in the United States, that were worse than this with as least as widespread corruption. Uh, the 19th president of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes, was called Rutherford by his opponents because of the uh, corruption that led directly to his election and that followed him into his office. Again, this is not to make light of the actual pain caused by these things this year or the, self, the seriousness of the political times we live in. Diseases are serious. Elections have consequences. Life is sacred from conception to natural death. This is, these are serious issues. 
but the breathy pearl clutching done by so many as though the things we have lived through this year are totally unique to all history is foolishness. Even with all that has happened, we still live in the best time of the history of the world after the fall. Where even the poorest among us, especially here in the U.S., have access to technology, healthcare, and conveniences that weren't available to the very richest people in the world a hundred years ago, let alone 500 or 1,000. You can't tell me that you're having the worst time in history when you're tweeting from your handheld computer in your air-conditioned home with indoor plumbing, with running hot and cold water next to your refrigerator full of food. You cannot tell me that you're having it the worst time ever. On the second count, that is on January 1, everything will be sunshine and rainbows. As Christians, especially as Christians, we do not look to the calendar for salvation. We look to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. God is sovereign. He is firmly in control. This is not Y2K come to life, if you're old enough to remember what that is. If we are in Christ, we need not fear what is coming next. That doesn't mean we need to pretend as though nothing is wrong. That doesn't mean that we, don't, that we live in a proverbial, I'm doing fine, white lie that most of us do because the truth would be too hard. When we look at the Psalms, we see every emotion under the sun. About a third of the psalms are psalms of lament, crying out to God in our pain, grieving the pain that is being experienced. So to quote from the article earlier, frustration, fear, depression, they're all in the Bible. Along with the psalmist, we are invited to, com- to be completely open with the God of the universe. But sharing our trouble with God is not an end in itself. We also need to remember what is true, what is still true, even when the world is dark. So the point of pouring our troubles out to God is not mostly about getting things off our chests, but to take them to Him and to remind ourselves and remember that while we are not in control, God is. And not only is He in control, He is for us. Christian, He is for you. He is not against us. Even when the hard things, even in the hard things, he is for our good. All of that to say, there's nothing new under the sun. Even, maybe especially, personal suffering as we look to Psalm 4 and see that David too suffered. David, the chosen king of Israel, the one whom God picked out from among all the tribes and clans and families and brothers to be the king of his chosen people. This anointing might lead us to expect that everything after was peace and light. God anointed David. David had a happy life. Try again. If we have any kind of familiarity with the life of David, we know that it was not an easy one. He was hunted like a criminal by Saul. He was nearly constantly at war with the enemies of Israel. He made a mess of his personal life. First by acting when he should not have with uh, adultery and murder. And then by not acting when he should have, when his son abused his sister. All of which led to two attempts to take over the kingdoms by, to take over his own kingdom by two of his own sons. David knew trouble. In fact, just the last psalm, Psalm 3, is David lamenting, crying out to God in his trouble in the midst of the first takeover bid by his son Absalom. In which Absalom briefly gains control of the throne and David has to run away to survive. This psalm... Psalm 4 is not as clear about the circumstances of trouble that David is in. 
But from the contents, we can tell that David is being attacked more in reputation than in body. He needs more emotional support than physical, which makes him no less pressing or important. As we read it, this psalm moves from personal lament, a a crying out to God in sadness, to a confidence in God. Confidence that even though circumstances might not change, God is sufficient. David shows us that when we have God's favor, we have all we really need. I think we will be served well by breaking this psalm into three parts. Hebrew poetry doesn't um, always divide nicely into even sections with even verses as much as I would like it to. This psalm has one speaker, David, but he isn't talking to the same person throughout. David begins by addressing God with his problem in verse 1. David is in trouble, that's why he's praying. He then turns in verses 2 through 5 to talk to his enemies, protesting their treatment of him and telling them what they should do. And then third, in the last three verses, there is a final expression of, God's, of David's security in God. This enables him to say as he closes, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let us look to verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. What is your knee-jerk response to an injustice to you? Do you complain, retaliate, whine, shut down? The godly response is to follow David and cry out to to the Lord. David is honest with God. He's deeply distressed and tells God, answer me when I call. He doesn't try to keep up appearances. He doesn't pretend. He's not saying, I'm fine, all is well, when clearly all is not well. But David is not stuck with internalizing his troubles. God has given him relief before, and because God is ever faithful, he comes to him again. Do you? Do you take advantage of being a child of God by coming to him with your troubles? You might say, I'm not an anointed king of Israel. How can I come to God with my problems? The answer is, you're right. You're not an anointed king of Israel. You are not David, but Christian, you have it better than David. You have Christ actively interceding for you. You have his finished work accounted to you. So you are more free to come to God than even David was. You can, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, bring your troubles directly to God. And when you do, you don't have to pretend. You can and should be honest to God and yourself, telling him exactly where you hurt and how you feel. He knows it already. We can't fool God. He made us. So when David brings his trouble to God, he does so knowing that while he is being wronged, his own righteousness doesn't come from himself. In comparison to his enemies, David might be righteous, but his only hope for righteousness before God must come from God himself. O God of my righteousness. David is aware of his own sin, and so he asks God to be gracious to him and hear his prayer. David's in our only hope before God is his grace. David then turns to address his enemies. Verses 2 and 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. 
Here we come to the heart of David's problem. His reputation is being trashed. He's being attacked with lies and deceit. Not only because his enemies want to destroy him, but because his enemies love lies. They are diametrically opposed to him and his convictions. This is the default of fallen man, to love what is false, to love lies and vain words, to seek after what is evil. We see this in riots in the streets. We see this in politics on both sides. We see this in all manner of ways and in all manner of people. Men do what they love, and fallen men love sin, and they hate the godly. Thomas Horton says, Men's love is according to some working and impression upon their own spirits. And so it is here at, in the point of vanity that, these, that those which are vain persons, they delight in vain things. As children, they love such matters as are most agreeable to their childish dispositions. And, do, and as do suit them in that particular. Out of the heart comes all kind of evil. Men do what they love, and what they love is evil. David doesn't stop with the question of how long his enemies will seek after lies. He reminds them and himself that God sets the godly apart. This is a warning. This is a warning to his enemies and a comfort to himself. How? Because the godly really are the Lord's. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Remember, David didn't earn being set apart. It wasn't as, he, as if he was godly or righteous in himself. He told us in the first line of the first verse that God was his righteousness. David was one of God's people, set apart by grace, not by works. If David's ultimate righteousness depended on his works, he would have no hope. Remember what I said earlier about his life. He was an adulterous murderer. But he was a repentant adulterous murderer who had been set apart by God himself, and God would not abandon him. This should cause an echo in our heads from John 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Therefore, David can say, the Lord hears when I call. For the Lord to hear is for him to answer. There can be no doubt of the Lord hearing his people. In Psalm 34, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So what does that mean for us here now in the year 2020? Remember that for those who are, the Lord, who are the Lord's, those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, those who have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are one of his sheep. This means you, Christian. God will take care of you. No matter what you face in life or sickness or death or attacks from enemies, God will take care of you and nothing, nothing can thwart his sovereign will. This should flood us with peace, with by His grace, it should wash over us. It should cause us joy and confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who saves us. This is what happened to David. His confidence in the Lord allowed him to both rebuke his enemies and call them to repentance in the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. Be angry and do not sin. 
Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The first two verses of, or the first two words of verse 4 are difficult. They don't seem to make any sense in the context of the verse or the passage. The difficulty is lessened when we learn, when we look at the verb in Hebrew. So the, the be angry can also mean tremble, which is how the NIV and the New American Standard Bible have it. I think that helps us to understand what David is saying here. So if, if, if this is the case, and David is saying tremble and do not sin, what does he mean? To paraphrase Calvin, it means to tremble before God. This is a call to repentance. The evil you are planning should be abandoned because God is against you in it. It is stupid to run headlong into the wickedness you are planned without any fear of God or sense of danger. David is calling his enemies to think before they act, to consider what they are doing and stop it. This is the first half of repentance, to consider your sin as sin. Before anyone can turn from sin, the second half of repentance, you must first recognize what you are doing is indeed sinful. This is why it's so important for us to regularly examine our own hearts and repent of our own sin to tremble before the holiness of God in our own unholiness. If we do not regularly do this, we are hardened in our sin, and we will not hesitate in continuing down the downward spiral of increasing sin in an ever-hardening heart. So David tells those against him, tremble and do not sin. More, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. If I could put what David said in a single thought, it would be wake up and think about what you're doing. As David calls his enemies to repentance, he's warning them, consider and reconsider to what danger they have been exposing themselves, namely the just and righteous wrath of God. This is a kind of grace that David is, is giving to his enemies. He's warning them of the wrath to come, and it should cause us to stop and consider how we interact with our own enemies. We all have those who oppose us. Do we bring the gospel to bear? Or do we match rage for rage? Or do we lose hope and go hide in a hole? David does neither. He does not fly into a rage or retreat into himself. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can follow in his steps. In verse 5, David moves from his call to repentance to a call for action. That is, he calls for true repentance. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David here isn't calling for sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices. He's calling for obedience. That is proof of repentance. God is not pleased with mere outward form, but he demands obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul does not obey God and tries to get away with it by saying, I'll just make some sacrifices, it'll be fine. The prophet Samuel responds by saying in verse 22 of that same chapter, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So these sacrifices are only right if they come from repentance. And as the end of verse 5 says, trust in the Lord. You might think that David's call for sacrifices couldn't be more irrelevant today. We don't make sacrifices. We don't slaughter bulls and goats. 
But you couldn't be more wrong. That these sacrifices were rituals God ordained for his people. Much as gathering together as a church regularly and, and taking the Lord's Supper together regularly are for us today, though it's not a one-to-one comparison between sacrifices and gathering for church, there's still a link. In the Old Testament, it was possible to follow all of the outward practices and sacrifices and still be at odds with God. It's the same today. You can have never missed a single gathering of the church in your entire life and still be at odds with God. That is not to, that is not to say that sacrifices under the Old Covenant or church attendance under the New are unimportant. Both are very important. Both in their times are a command of God. And to disobey a direct command from God is a grievous sin. But all things must be done in obedience and faith. And if anything is not done in obedience and faith, it is an offense to God and not pleasing at all. In the rest of the psalm, David turns back from speaking to his enemies to speaking to God. Verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. People love what they think is good. This includes every single person. There is no person who does, who does what they think will not be good for them in some way, whether in the short term or the long term. Everybody wants what is good for themselves. Everybody does not want what is evil for themselves. The problem is that fallen man has no idea what true goodness is. They chase after what looks good to their eyes and feels good to their senses. One commentator says, man wants good. He hates evil as evil because he has pain and suffering and death through it. And he wishes to find that supreme good which will content the heart and save him from evil. But men mistake good. They look for a good that is to gratify their passions. They have no notion of any happiness that does not come to them through the medium of their senses. Therefore, they reject spiritual good. They reject the supreme God by whom alone all the powers of the soul or man can be gratified. David, in all those who are God's own people, when we are thinking clearly, know that true goodness comes from God himself, which is why David asked God to lift up the light of his face, of your face upon us. David is asking for the blessing God gave Aaron to bless his people in Romans 6, or Romans, Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Or to, to put it another way, David is asking God to fulfill his greatest desire of seeing God. In the same way that Moses asked God to show himself to him. When Moses asked God to show himself, God spoke. Exodus 34 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God showed himself to Moses 
through his word. And after spending time hearing the voice of God, Moses came down from the mountain with his face shining. In the same way, David is filled with joy at the mere thought of seeing God's face. That is, when David is reminded of God's faithfulness by his word, when his faith is renewed, his heart is flooded with joy. True, deep, lasting joy. More than the very best of the temporary things on earth. Calvin says of this verse, David declares that he rejoices more in the favor of God alone than earthly men rejoice when they enjoy all the earthly good things with the desire of which they are generally inflamed. Here we see that satisfaction that comes from God is true satisfaction. The satisfaction that lasts comes from God alone. The grain and wine of the world don't last, and to chase after them leads only to emptiness. The false joys of the world are empty things, things that only make the hunger for them greater with less and less reward, like an addiction that needs higher and higher doses just to maintain a baseline, let alone a brief high. Not so with God. The joy that comes from Him actually fills and then expands our capacity for joy so that we can enjoy more things better. True joy from God means that we can truly enjoy the good gifts He has given us, like good food or good weather or a good book or watching a ball game or any number of good things without them becoming idolatrous. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven, that is God, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. More than that, even when all the things of earth are taken away from us, When we find our joy in God, our joy cannot be taken from us. Even in the midst of turmoil and chaos, we can have peace. Because David found that God was sufficient in all things, even when everything else was taken from him, he still has enough. David is not worried about the outcome of his enemies' attacks on him. He is concerned, wisely aware of what is going going on around him, but he's not consumed with what he can do nothing about. He is under the protection of God. And the protection of God is enough. Under his protection, David can sleep. How many of us lose sleep when we have troubles? How many of us worry about what we cannot control? Let us follow David and yield our troubles to God. And to believe that although it looks as though there is no help coming for us from men, Even still, we are kept in peace and safety under the very hand of God. That we have it even better than David when we have the rest of God's revelation. From the prophets through the New Testament, we have his fullest revelation of himself in Jesus. The Word become flesh. In Jesus, we see the righteousness of God in its fullest sense. In his perfect life, his atoning death and resurrection, we see Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. And in this, we can say in faith that Jesus is our righteousness. Let us find our hope and highest good in him. This idea could not be any more at odds with the world. They desire to make their own goodness and own righteousness. But in the end, it is neither good nor right, but totally unholy. To paraphrase Spurgeon, men of the world are seeking their highest good from the world. Let us desire his, that is God's, favor, for it infinitely overtakes all things of the world. But let us desire 
the favor of the Savior because it is better than life itself. Christian, God has chosen you. Let your souls be pleased in Him. Let us find our worth, our hope, our life in Him. Because of the work of Christ, we are forever His. We can come to God through Christ, not worrying about annoying Him as we do. God does not get annoyed with you. Come to Him. We can, as it says in Hebrews 4, let us then draw with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We don't deserve this. But we have it by God's grace. And if God gives us this, if through Christ He brings us from death to life, from being enemies to adopted sons, what do we have to worry about? Romans 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elective? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? So shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor death, depth, nor height, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this we have peace, and we can both lay down and sleep. The Lord makes us dwell in safety, and nothing, nothing can touch us. Let's pray. God of our righteousness, we trust in you. We trust that all these things of this year are under your sovereign hand and that you will not allow a single thing to happen that is not for our ultimate good. We pray that we would trust you better, that we would find our joy and peace in you, that you would give us assurance of our salvation in Christ that we might rest and live in you. In Jesus' name, amen.